Man, it's so good to sing. (laughs) Of the incomprehensible mercy of God. What Jesus did on our behalf, turning away the Father's wrath, bringing us near, making us friends, making us children of God. As we consider his mercy this morning, I hope that those words that we just sang will uh, echo in your heart and mind. I hope they will echo in your life this week, believer. And maybe for uh, the one who has yet to know Christ, um, that it will resonate for the first time, the mercy of God. We'll be in Jeremiah 27 today, covering the whole chapter today. A sermon title, as you heard Kyle mention it earlier, Bound to the Yoke of Rebellion. And on our way to that text, I want to tell you about some news I encountered this week. There was a a Belgian farmer that accidentally altered the border between Belgium and France after moving moving a boundary stone to make way for his tractor. That sounds like an important task, uh, you native Mississippi folks who tractor driving is essential in your life. Uh, He moved a stone to make way for his tractor. The stone, which had been in its place since 1819, was moved more than seven feet, making France smaller and Belgium larger. The neighboring French mayor reportedly said, we should be able to avoid another border war. Now, what we've been studying in Jeremiah Uh, It ought to be clear to you that the actions of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar against Judah were no small boundary dispute. This was an act of total military and political domination. And it happened according to God's plan. That's the reminder that we need all through this. It happened according to God's plan. As we've been discussing, the people of Judah were rebellious against God. That's what we're talking about today. Their rebellion, rebellious against God. And God used the neighboring nation, Babylon, to exercise his judgment against their rebellion in hopes that it would lead them to repent, that it would lead them back to him, to a meaningful, vibrant relationship with the one true God. As we've encountered this part of Jeremiah, I want you to know that chapters 27 through 29 deal with Jeremiah's encounters with false prophets. And what's happening is we're finally to a place where God is establishing his true word in the midst of things that are being fulfilled. So we've moved into probably around 597, 598. So from last week's message to this week's message, we're probably 12 years further down the road. So while 12 years ago, Jeremiah was preaching and nothing was happening, and they're saying, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not speaking on behalf of God. We're in good shape. Everything looks positive for us. And now, 12 years later, the kingdom of Babylon has already come in, as we'll see from the text. They've already come into the temple, and they've taken some things just because they wanted to. Nice things. Gold things, treasure that belongs to the temple of God has already been taken by Babylon. But even with Babylon having entered the land, taken some of these items from the temple, the people still wouldn't believe that Jeremiah was a true prophet of God. Maybe there's some application for us here. Often when sin is confronted and the warnings of its effects become a reality, a reality. When you tell that one you love, hey, the decisions you're making, they're going to lead you down a road where it is going to be painful, and then you watch them do it anyway. 
We've watched once solid believers continue to fall further into the grip of rebellion and it's confronted and then they just dig in their heels. That's what's happening to the people of God right here, the people of Judah. So let's read this chapter. It's long. Stick with me. Okay. You'll notice before we get into it that Jeremiah is addressing the nations, the pagan nations, and then he addresses Judah. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the kings of the or the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever I seem or it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave." But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concern, concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. But they are prophesying falsely in my name with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Then I spoke to the priests and to all the people saying, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will, will, will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Babylon, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Let's pray. Father, bless your word this morning. Bless us as we hear it. Give me clarity. 
Give me the ability to rest in Jesus. Jesus, make yourself known to your people that we may be more like you. Holy Spirit, help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about the yoke of rebellion. The yoke of rebellion. You see right there in the first few verses. So in this really wild episode, part of the reason I love Jeremiah is that things like this happen which are so weird. God instructs Jeremiah to build a yoke with straps that would be placed upon him, something that's supposed to go on an ox. And he says, build it and put it on yourself, Jeremiah. So he's told to wear this thing, not as a fashion statement, not for a show, but this was a call for Judah and the nations to surrender to Babylon. It's coming. God is saying to the people, it is coming whether you like it or not. God's message is the only way that you'll make it out of this is if you give up now. Can you imagine being among the people of God and God's message to you is just surrender to the enemy. Surrender to the enemy because this is my purpose for you. That would be a hard pill to swallow. Yet, as one commentator says, to find life in Jeremiah's day was to give up home, country, and temple, which the people of Judah were not anxious to do. They believed that God would be found only in the temple when God wanted to be found in their hearts. You see God's purposes in this judgment, in this discipline. The theme this morning as we walk through this occasion, this, this uh, interesting story of Jeremiah, the theme is all rebellion against the sovereign God earns destruction, yet... God extends mercy. All rebellion against the sovereign God earns destruction, yet God extends mercy. Generally speaking, we understand in the gospel that our sin against God earns us absolute destruction. The wages of sin is death, right? We know that. Romans 6, 23. Here's what Isaiah 66, 24 said. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Absolute destruction is what we earn by our sin, our rebellion against God. And so God uses this image, the yoke, the oxen yoke, uses this image to show what he intends to do through Nebuchadnezzar. It ought to be very clear to you. But as we apply the yoke of rebellion, I want to be careful because this is a tough thing to discern. When we open the scriptures, you know, what does the yoke mean for me as I apply this? So I would say it a couple of ways. First off, either the yoke is something related to the consequences of sin. All right? You gotta, you gotta be able to distinguish as a believer. You gotta be able to distinguish, like God's punishment, or God's discipline, from the consequences of your actions. Okay. A lot of people they commit sin and then they think God is doing something to them. No, it's just the outworking of what you did, rebelling against God. So we have to distinguish punishment, discipline. We have to distinguish consequences of sin. So the yoke of rebellion could just be that sin or that waywardness that is manifesting in your life according to God's purposes. But secondly, this yoke, should you reject it, just like the people of God, should we reject this yoke could lead to a heavier yoke that we're going to cover in a couple of weeks in chapter 28, a yoke of iron, a yoke that leads to condemnation. So back up a little bit. God's promise to Abraham, 
way back when, and his covenant with Israel set a people apart from the world in order to show that a relationship with the one true God is possible. Ultimately, God's promise ensured that people from all nations, and now you get to see where God is getting his word, his revelation to the nations in this text. God promises, he ensures that people from all nations will be brought into covenant with him. And it's worth a reminder that Jeremiah was called, Jeremiah 1.5, to be a prophet to the nations. I'm going to use language today that refers to people who are near and people who are far off. And this comes from Ephesians 2.17, to distinguish the people of Judah, the people of the old covenant versus the nations. So the people that are near are people in covenant with God. The people that are far off are the people of the nations, the pagans, the distant lands that need to know about God. Ephesians 2.17 said, Jesus came and preached peace to you, thank you, who are far off and peace to those who were near. So there were those that were Jews that understood the old covenant but were not believers in Jesus when they heard the gospel, they became believers. And there were those in the nations that when they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they came to the family of God and they were united as one. And Ephesians talks about the dividing wall of hostility now is down. It fell down because of what Jesus did. So we're talking about God's people near, the nations far off. I want to give you four lessons on the na nature of God this morning. Four lessons on the nature of God from this text. Because God is communicating himself to the nations. Number one is a lesson on sovereignty. God is sovereign over those who are far off. God is sovereign over those who are far off. We often reduce the God of Israel or the God of Christians to, you know, this is sort of the sphere he operates in. In reality, the scriptures tell us he is the God who is over all people, sovereign over all things. This is from verses 4 through 7. Simply put, God has authority over nations that do not recognize him as God, in Huey's words. Here's how he communicates it through Jeremiah in those few verses. First off, he says God is sovereign over creation. Good verse 5. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with men and animals that are on the earth. In case there was any question in the minds of these nations about who worships the sovereign creator God, Jeremiah clarifies it right here. He is the one true sovereign God. God's creative acts do not need to be preached to know something about him. This is what is beautiful about God revealing himself. Are you familiar with the verses from Romans 1, 19 and 20? For what can be known about God is plain to them. Talking about mankind. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Get this. Don't just remember this for today's sermon. Remember this forever. Not one single person is somehow off the hook because of their supposed ignorance about God. They can look upon a tree and say, man, somebody created this. It's, it's that simple. So the nations are accountable to God. Here's another point that needs repeating in a, every church, really, at least once a year. People do not go to hell because they don't hear the gospel. Do you understand me? They go to hell because they're sinners. So a lot of people have it in mind, well, it's just not, it's not just for God to send people to hell that, that didn't ever hear the gospel. What? They have seen his creation. They have seen his eternal power. 
his divine nature. They have looked upon all its beautiful effects and they have loved people and received love and all of this is evidence of God. And they said, I don't want him. He's sovereign over creation. With any knowledge of the created order, the human mind is allowed to know something about God, and yet in our sinfulness, we suppress that truth. I refuse to believe that there is a God to whom I am accountable. That's what our sin does. Sovereign over creation. Sovereign over rulers. He continues there. Men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. And in this case, I'm giving it to Nebuchadnezzar. Whether you like it or not, that's what he's saying. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So in case you might have thought otherwise... God isn't subservient to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not like God is saying, well, this dude is just getting a lot of power and his, his kingdom is growing, so maybe I just need to like, uh, let them go under his dominion for a while. No, on the contrary, Nebuchadnezzar is a pawn in God's purpose. And I don't even like making a chess reference because there's no way to illustrate God's sovereignty I don't even know how to play chess. God says, I grant authority to whomever I want. Man, applications galore for work, for citizenship, applications galore for family. In this case, God's purposes bring the people The purpose is to bring the people back to intimate relationship with himself. And he's given a role to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And they will act exactly according to God's design to accomplish these purposes. I love this this interaction. The sovereign God uses people who are acting on their own volition to accomplish his will. You can't figure that out. I can't figure that out. But it is a beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? Over rulers, Proverbs 21, 1 says, I love this image. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's just doing what he wants, but he's doing God's work. God is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over rulers, and he is sovereign over events. Thirdly, the scenes of history have already been written, and now they're being acted out in the world. Nations will serve the leaders of Babylon as God ordained it. But when the season comes to an end, those leaders will be slave to the nations. So there's a bit of hope that is given right here to the nations. Hey, you're going to serve Babylon, but it's going to come to an end eventually. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the nation of Babylon, is going to be a servant to the nations. The roles are going to be swapped. God is sovereign over events. Here's a couple of corroborating verses for you. Acts 17, 26. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and those boundaries of their dwelling place. So Belgium boundary, when it was moved seven feet this past week, God knew that. He appointed that. James 4, 13 through 15. These are for the these verses are for the folks that, that think you're in control. Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. God is sovereign over the events of human history. And he's establishing this through the mouth of Jeremiah before the nations right here. You can imagine for many people how offensive this might have been. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the sovereign God. So there's a lesson on sovereignty. God is sovereign over those far off, not just those who are near. As we illustrate this, I I told you illustrations here suffer, but as new technology for driving comes out, I'm I'm honestly terrified. I'm terrified at the thought of a self-driving car. Like we can sort of set our car on autopilot and and take our hands off the wheel and trust that it's just going to sort of do what it's supposed to do. Many people errantly think that God has done this, that history is being worked out and the future is simply in the hands of a bunch of little moving parts in the world, that God is somehow like a passenger or distant or maybe even just a role player. But you know, Christian, when you neglect the depth and the breadth and the the finest details of all creation, all these things that rest in the hands of the absolute sovereign God, you have weakened your faith. We worship a sovereign God. A lesson on sovereignty. Second, a lesson on mercy. Verses 8 through 11. God is merciful toward those far off. God is merciful toward those far off. Now, I imagine the people of Judah, when they heard Jeremiah preaching this message of mercy to the nations, they would have been offended. Much like when Jesus uh, was in the temple and when he read from the, the scroll of Isaiah concerning himself, his work that he came to do. And then they questioned him. They questioned him about God's mercy, and he said, You know, not one person in Israel was healed back in the day when Naaman, a pagan, was healed. You know what they did? They got so angry. Because his point was, God has extended mercy to people who are not of Israel. That the gospel truly is for the whole world. And when Jesus proclaims this, man, they got angry. And I imagine in this setting... When the people of God were like, hey, he's treating the nations like he's treating us. This can't be. God doesn't do that. In fact, this lesson on mercy shows that God is merciful toward those who are far off. As the sovereign one, God can distribute mercy to whomever he wants. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And here he distributes the mercy to the nations in a couple of ways. First off is a mercy through, is mercy through warning. Mercy warning. The message is, Babylon is coming. Your fortune tellers are lying to you. You say, how is that merciful? Because God has no obligation to tell the nations anything. What has he already done in creation? Every signpost you see of the one true God. Available. God has no obligation to tell the nations anything. It is an act of his compassionate mercy to reveal any of his plans to them. Maybe I can illustrate it this way as far as Jeremiah's role in warning them. This mercy through warning. If a bridge is shut down and someone on the road tells you before you get there, that that bridge is out and you need to turn around, then they have extended mercy to you in your ignorant condition. They didn't have to do that. But if you get to the bridge, do you think that they'll let you pass based on your ignorance? Well, I had no no idea the bridge was out. Just let me go through. No. 
and now you're probably late for work. Or maybe like the fortune tellers, you've got a, a backseat driver who's telling you there's no problem with the bridge. And so you get to the bridge and you think, well, maybe they'll let me pass because I was misinformed. I was told the wrong thing. No, they're not going to let you pass and you're still late for work. On God's behalf, Jeremiah mercifully warns the nations of what's coming. Definite destruction. But you see, Christian, isn't that your job too? Isn't that your job too? You got neighbors? John 3.18, headed for destruction. Condemned already. You got family members standing condemned before God and your job is to say that there's a holy God to whom you are accountable and your sin earns destruction. And you plead with them like Jeremiah pleads. You plead with them like the apostles plead. Turn to faith in Jesus Christ, the only hope for you. This is a merciful warning. But God is also merciful by withholding. Verse 11, he says, But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. So to the nations, hey, if you'll submit to this yoke, I'll withhold much of the destruction that is coming from you. I'll withhold my judgment to some degree against you. And this is the crux of mercy, the essence of mercy. God withholds the punishment toward those in the helpless and hopeless state of sin and rebellion. I know so many people get bent out of shape about God's judgment, often citing the Old Testament. Well, God is just too judgmental. He's too angry. But is not God completely justified to destroy every sinner from the moment of sin's first manifestation? See, if your thought is, well, that's not fair, you have man right at the center of your entire world, and God serves man. But if you turn it around and see, this is God's world, he's sovereign, he can do what he wants. And then when we sin against him, we see that for what it is, deserving of punishment. And yet, God extends mercy. The fact that God looks upon not only his own people in their sin, but the wide spectrum of the nations who've set their lives in opposition to him. It's evidence of his mercy. The fact that God looks upon us and feels any compassion at all, it's wondrous news, folks. I don't know about you, but I, I think... Uh, Probably the vast majority of us are part of this nation's. God was merciful to bring the gospel to you and me. He wasn't required to. He wasn't bound to. He wasn't subjected to some rule that says you've got to be fair to everybody, God. No, he mercifully let us know of the judgment that is coming and the grace that is found in the Son, Jesus. In Romans, we learn that God's mercy, uh, some versions use the word kindness or goodness, God's mercy is what leads people to repentance. So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then today... Acknowledge that God is showing you mercy by letting you hear from his word. God is interacting with you right now by his word, showing you mercy. 
a believer. God mercifully acts in the midst of your rebellion and calls you back. See my mercy. Return to me. Would you respond to his kindness, his mercy this morning? There's a lesson on mercy. God is merciful toward those who are far off, too. There's a third lesson. It's a lesson on judgment, verses 12 through 22. God judges those who are near. All right, so we flipped it around. We're done talking about the the nations, those who are far off. Now we go to the household of God, and you know where judgment begins. The household of God. A lot of Christians forget that judgment still happens. The difference for the believer is we are going to be judged on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our own. So he turns to the people of God. And get this, God's chosen people receive the same message as the nation's. Stephen Smith says here, the news of the yoke had to be especially painful for Zedekiah. He was told to submit to a foreign nation. This is the promised land, right? This is the inheritance from God for the children of Abraham. This was one great sacrifice under Joshua, sustained under David, and became world-renowned under Solomon. You can imagine Zedekiah's thoughts about this. There's no way I'm giving this to Babylon. There's no way I'm giving it up. Undoubtedly, nothing in him would give up the temple or allow his people to return to captivity. So he dug in his heels. He continued to rebel. You know, nearness is often a stumbling block. And I wish I could spend... 20 minutes talking about this. But maybe sometimes nearness to the gospel becomes a reason to walk away for some folks. Maybe you're one of those like me. I grew up in the church, always in the church, always, literally. I even fought hard. I refused to go to church for seasons of my life, but I ended up there because my parents knew what was best for me. You know, sometimes as I walk people who were taught the gospel throughout their childhood, as I watch them walk away from the faith, I see evidence that sometimes nearness breeds almost an entitlement. Oh, well, you know, I'm in church all the time. I got believing family. Certainly God's not as angry with me as they're saying. Nearness is often a stumbling block. A lot of people in the New Testament, Jews, who were blood descendants of Abraham, this is why it was so hard for them them to say that that ultimately didn't make them okay with God, but it was Jesus, and that Jesus did that for Gentiles, the nations as well. You can see how nearness breeds that entitlement. I would say there's three cautions based upon this. A lesson on judgment. God judges those who are near. Three cautions here. Don't presume upon God's patience. Verses 12 and 13. Zedekiah and the people wrongly presumed that their special relationship with God would exempt them from the consequences of their rebellion. Yet God extends mercy just like he has to the other nations. He gives one last opportunity to repent when he allows them to escape Babylon. They can walk off and avoid the destruction. Maybe because of your nearness to the gospel, you might presume upon God's patience. Near to the gospel, near to the preached word, near to the work of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 6 kind of language. Yet you've not surrendered to Christ. Are you really willing to test God's patience? 
For the professing believer, the presumptuous Christian life is a life of lawlessness. It's a life that mocks God's grace. Do you make a home for your sin thinking that you've got special privilege under God's grace? Where sin abounds, grace abounds. Is that your favorite verse? Does your freedom lead you to compromise your holiness? Maybe worse, have you presumed that you know God when you do not? Don't presume upon God's patience. This is what Zedekiah and the people of Judah did. Secondly, don't downplay God's discipline, verses 14 and 15. Smith here says, to be clear, they could not avoid the discipline. Those who did not submit to the discipline would be destroyed. And I think that points us to that iron yoke that comes up in chapter 28. So very quickly, application, consequences. This may be the yoke of your rebellion. Submit to it. Do you understand that God disciplines those he loves, chastises the son he receives, Hebrews 12, 6. When you recognize that the consequences of your actions become tools in the Spirit's hand to make you more like Christ, you learn to appreciate the totality of God's work. Now, if you would, if, if you would try to take the seat of God... You might say, well, you know, you justify your sin because God will use this down the road to make me more like Jesus. You're a fool if you think that way. Absolute fool. You fight sin. And in every area where you fail, you can, you can rest assured that God will turn that around for his purpose. Don't downplay God's discipline. Thirdly, don't give ear to God's enemies. 16 through 21. It's a shame that among the people of God there are found to be enemies of God, wolves in sheep's clothing. To the priests and the people, Jeremiah warns them, do not listen to their lies. So before any hint of invasion, Jeremiah was prophesying invasion, and false prophets were declaring only peace, peace, when there is no peace. And now some of the temple furnishings were already in Babylon, proving Jeremiah's words. And yet the false prophets still insisted that the temple and Judah would be okay. I suppose they relied on the power of positive thinking. Oh, it's okay. The, the furnishings will be back soon. It's the message they were hearing. A brief word on these furnishings, treasures made long ago by Solomon, 1 Kings 7, later shown to the Babylonians by Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20. Among those things remaining... The Lord pronounced the pillars that stood in front of the temple, the sea, which the priests washed their hands before offering a sacrifice, the stands, which were, uh, they held up ten basins where sacrificial animals were washed, and all the other items that essentially were remaining there, they already, according to God, belonged to Nebuchadnezzar. 2 Kings 25 allows us to know that these things were later broken down into pieces for transport. Put that in terms of your life or maybe even the life of the church. Imagine everything normal about your life being carried off in pieces by the enemy. Some of y'all know exactly what that's like. Your sin has produced destructive effects in your life. And you have watched the enemy carry off the things that once were blessings from God. Maybe there's a moment to soak that in. It's possible that you have not made the connection until now that your rebellion is the reason that this has happened to you in some way. The beauty of it, as we see Jeremiah's words remind us, is that God can fully restore what was lost. We'll go on to our fourth lesson, a lesson on faithfulness. 
God remembers his promise. Verse 22. We'll read verse 22 to you. They shall be carried off into Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I'll bring them back and restore them to this place. There's a lot of beautiful truth that's wrapped up in that verse, I believe. As it is common for Jeremiah and his messages, he provides a hint of hope here. Even though the temple would be plundered, even though your lives would be totally wrecked, God will eventually return the order here. As we apply this, there's an obvious picture of the Savior. We may say this is a promise with a visit. He says, I will visit them. It's a promise with a visit. This word indicates a gracious visit. And as I read this, I was immediately reminded of uh, Zechariah, the dad of John the Baptist. When he heard the news of the coming Messiah and that his son was going to sort of roll out the red carpet, he says these words in a song to God, Luke 1, 68, 78, and 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do you all see that God's promised visit has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who, according to John, tabernacled among us. He was with us on this earth human flesh, and now he dwells at the right hand of the Father in that human flesh, glorified, awaiting the day when he will return to accomplish the full restoration of all things. Believer, everything that was stripped from you because of your sin will be restored, and I would say 100-fold in Jesus. It's a promise with a visit. Christ came. He visited us and redeemed us. But this is also a promise to restore. The restoration of worship to the, in the temple was a short-term evidence of the promise. For them, it was probably painfully long. The greater and lasting evidence of the promise is the kingdom of Christ, which upon its final consummation, will bring restoration to all of creation. A new heaven and a new earth in which the redeemed people of God will dwell with Christ forever. Here it is in Jeremiah's words, 33.8, I will cleanse from them from the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. So it's for the people of God. It's for those who are near, but it's also for those who are far off. Isaiah 66, 19 and 20. And from them I will send survivors to the nations that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers. Get that? Brothers from the nations. All the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Do you see God's purpose from the beginning was to redeem people from the nations and now we see Jeremiah showing us more of the fulfillment of that a fulfillment that would ultimately come in Christ and through the church of the Lord Jesus. This is why the Lord Jesus commissioned us to go to all the nations and make disciples. All rebellion against a sovereign God 
earns destruction. But God extends mercy. The yoke of rebellion is used of God to purify his people, prepare them for restoration. So as we conclude, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Are you resisting the fact that there are consequences to your sin? God will use those consequences as an instrument to shape you like Christ and better prepare you for his work. Church, churches, plural, are we resisting God's discipline as a whole people? Maybe today you're just not convinced. You're rejecting the yoke of God's merciful discipline, and that will inevitably lead you to a heavier yoke, a yoke that crushes you, a yoke that leads you into eternal separation from God. Do not harden your heart. Do not dig in your heels against God today. As we turn our attention to Jesus, we also turn our attention to a different yoke. One that you heard from Matthew 11 earlier. A yoke that connects you to Jesus. One where he does all the work and invites you to follow him. <laughs> the heavy yoke of rebellion that we earned under the wrath of God was given to him at the cross. You can almost get that image of Jesus bearing his own cross. The yoke. And now he welcomes, he welcomes us to take the easy yoke. The yoke that was fitted for us. The light yoke. And we take this yoke by faith. Is that you today? Do you need to turn to Christ, taking his yoke upon yourself, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart? He desires you to respond to him today, to his word today. He extends mercy. Let's pray.